Welcome to another podcast. Today I'm going to discuss the art of storytelling and before I get into the art of storytelling I'll also discuss what it is when I say what do I mean when I say storytelling and how you use it in discussions and why you should use it. And there are two particular reasons why this podcast came up. Uh, firstly, I was doing a call with a candidate from Canada and while the candidate I thought was speaking very well, I did feel that many times he would respond to my questions in very generic terms. For example, I asked him what was his current role at the company he was working at and he told me, well, I'm a research scientist reporting to the CTO and CEO. I manage technology risk. Um, I plan the laboratory approach for um, any studies we're going to do. I sit in on client discussions. I present at conferences. I network and so on. Now, Think to yourself very clearly, that's the way most of you would respond to such a question. If I asked you what was your role, you would give me this very bland, generic role descriptor that you could put down as bullet points on your resume or your LinkedIn profile. In fact, the wording I used to describe this role is pretty much verbatim that the candidate gave me. That's a very boring way to describe your role. It has no impact, it has no power, and most importantly, it's not memorable. Whenever you have a discussion with, some, with someone, you want to tell them things that are insightful and that are memorable. A rule of thumb that I use when I have discussions with anyone is that I don't act on it until I have slept on it. And it's a rule. Even with clients, I always tell myself that if this is important, it will be important tomorrow. And I did the same thing as a management consultant. I know a lot of consultants always tell themselves I have to respond immediately. I speak to our own people that we place at McKinsey and BCG and so on, and they always tell me I've got to respond to something within five hours. I was different, actually, and I actually told my teams to, to be the same way, you know. Um, unless it's really urgent, it's better for you to think about it and sleep on it. Now, when I say sleep on it, I don't mean come in at 8 o'clock, do nothing today, sleep on it, come in at 8 o'clock the next morning and then start working. I mean work on it, but don't submit anything until you've had time to sleep on it. Come in the next morning and think about whether you need to make any changes. So maybe by 9, 10 o'clock you can send me whatever is needed. So I was a firm believer of, of following that process. Now why is storytelling important? Well, storytelling is important because it allows people to understand the implications of whatever you are trying to convey to them. And people remember stories. People don't remember, you know, an armload of facts. So, when this candidate was telling me about his role at his research firm, I was thinking to myself, this is quite a common attribute because I conducted about five interviews yesterday and I was very surprised that almost all of the candidates, and a lot of them went to firms like Deloitte, KPMG, Monitor, and so on, they were not telling me stories. They were telling me in very generic terms. In fact, I'm going to pull up one of the notes here, right? Um, so I was asking this candidate to tell me about a sustainable business practice initiative he ran at his previous firm. And he was... He started it by telling me a lot of information, but out of all that information, the notes that I have here is that there are no dates. I don't know when he did this. I don't know which year. I don't know how many years into his role he took this up. I don't know exactly how many people reported to him. I don't know what his role was. There's no context. I didn't understand why this was important to the organization. There were no numbers. There was no tangible benefit of him having done this. I didn't understand the challenge he faced. Um, there was no starting point to when 
he began this and why it linked into his career development. I couldn't link this story to anything that was important to consulting firms. Consulting firms are looking for leadership, analytical skills, conflict resolution, and teamwork. And he spoke for a long time, I think seven minutes, but at the end of this, I still cannot recall what he actually did. And it's a common problem most candidates face. They will ream off a lot of information. They think they're telling you a story, but it's not a story. So here are some tests to know when you are telling a story. I would like you to do this if you have time. Take out a, a, a recorder and imagine someone asked you a question such as, talk me through your most important leadership moment in your last job. I want you to talk it through for about two to three minutes and then I want you to play it and write it down, right? Write it down. I then want you to go to the New York Times right i want you to click on one of their major articles and i want you to open it up i want you to if your if your talk or your response had 600 words or whatever i want you to capture the first 600 words of a new york times article i want you to create two columns on a sheet of paper and i want you to lay out the new york times article there and i want you to lay out your response on the adjacent column what do you notice well by and large, you'll notice that your response lacks a lot of facts. Dates, times, places, names, all would be missing. Secondly, because you leave out things like names, names of companies, size of the objectives, all the context is missing, right? You'll also notice that you use many subjective terms, which is very common. People like using things, like saying things like, this was a very significant project, it was really difficult, we really struggled, um, we worked a long, long hours. Now, that's all subjective. For me, working long hours would be different from for you working long hours. So something that is significant, what does significant mean? Does it mean that it was important to the client or important to the company? Why was it significant? Did it have a, was it critical or was it urgent? The point is don't use subjective terminology and candidates do it all the time. They do it all the time. They think they are speaking in a very, very clear way, but at the end of the day, if I can't recall your story, you weren't very clear about it. And at the moment, I'm looking at seven, at the feedback from seven candidates here, and nothing, a few of them I could remember their stories because I thought they explained it very well. But most of them, they spoke in this non-detailed, non-factual way, just spouting of generalisms. Do the New York Times test and see how it works. So whenever you have to respond to something, don't simply read out your roles and responsibilities. Tell a story. So what I would have done with this, if I was in the role of this scientist that I'd interviewed and I'd, and someone had asked me, tell me about your current role, I'd say, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk you through an initiative I ran and what I did in that initiative which explains the role I had. Well, one of the initiatives we had to run was to launch a new thermoimaging product. And the, the way I work is that I advise the chief technology officer at the same time I advise the CEO I'm, I'm a dotted line to both because I need to guide the CTO but I also am an independent guide for the CEO so that he can check what's happening on the technology side of the business so in this particular project the chief technology officer felt that we could take one of the products we already had which had been around for 10 years with a few adjustments we could few adjustments and he thought it cost it would cost about a million dollars to do this we could roll out a new product targeting imaging in the dental sector and he felt that we could open up potentially a five billion dollar market just in the united states so what i did is that my job was to was to think about what were the skills we had 
within the organization and looking at all the IPs, patents, and so on, and what the chief t executive officer wanted to achieve on the business side, and go and try to understand, could this be done? Right. So what I went in is I built a prototype. So I went into the lab, I had to build a prototype, a, a rough prototype to see if it could work. It was by no means commercial yet. First I had to see if this could work, and then I had to think to myself, okay, if this can work, how do we scale this up? What are the technology risks attached to it, right? So once I've identified some of the technology risks, I then sit down with the commercial team, the chief financial officer, and I'd sit down with the business development team, so Dave and Emily respectively, and my job would be to then talk through some of the technological risks, and they would then translate that into what would be the financial cost of mitigating that risk, and then the other person, Emily, would discuss whether we could actually mitigate this risk in such a way that we create a product that would be appealing to the market. Once I've done that, I would then work with the design team to to sketch out how we'd actually build this. And my role there is quite important because while the, the, the manufacturing team is an important part of the business, because we're a small company, we don't actually have an in-house manufacturing team, so it's all outsourced. And I'm a very important conduit here because I need to make sure that they understand what we're trying to achieve. And I also play kind of a role of a troubleshooter so that when the chief technology officer is giving feedback, I need to step in sometimes and help the um, um, outsourced teams. And usually I've got to travel to China, I've got to travel to Germany to to um, guide them and make sure that the production is going according to schedule and obviously you know if we if we're building in a new product uh, I've got to generate enthusiasm for this product so I, I do play a sales role and in this particular case I sat in on seven client meetings uh, most of the clients were companies are uh, usually healthcare groups that have a large uh, dental practice within them. So we're looking at companies with a revenue of about a billion dollars each. My job was to sit in on some of the discussions with our CEO and the um, um, buying teams within these client groups. And uh, my role was twofold. One, I had to translate what the CEO was trying to explain and add some of the scientific element to it. And the other role was that when the um, technical teams from the client side ask specific questions like, you know, how will this work with maybe the power system we use? My job was to explain that and make sure that the business teams could understand the implications. And finally, I also presented at many conferences, and my primary role there was to talk about the impact of this technology in a language that people could understand. Now, I deliberately went a little bit longer there, but don't you feel that the story is much more interesting than just me? talking through a roll call of all my roles and responsibilities. Whenever you have an opportunity to, to talk about anything, it's always good to reduce it to a story because people remember stories. They don't remember roll calls. Another example of why this is important and something that has had a very large impact, and I think, in the way that I've worked as a consultant when I you know, was a partner and even when I was more junior as an you know, engagement manager and associate and so on, is that is typified by an example I experienced just a few hours ago. As many of you know, I'm we are currently in Mongolia and we are um, dealing with our executive clients. And I was sitting across the table from quite a young uh, executive who had been appointed the um, chief advisor to a very large family-owned mining concern in Central Asia. And it's a significant enterprise. And for those of you who are following what's happening in, my, in Mongolia, you know it's the hottest market for resources in the world today. I mean, the economy has been totally transformed. It's, the economy, I think, grew 20% last year. There's just so much wealth. There's a Louis Vuitton store. There's a Burberry store. Yeah, it's an incredible place to be, really. You know, I, I always... When I always I call back to Canada and I speak to colleagues and family, I always tell them that well, if you've got the right qualifications, 
you want to go to Mongolia. It's where it's happening at the moment, right? Forget about Australia and their resources, but Mongolia has just got a shortage of everything, and it's it's growing incredibly. So, I was having a discussion with the uh, with the chief advisor. You know, it's different terminology here, and I was trying to explain to him how they should measure the performance of the company, and they were using a certain kind of measurement which I didn't really feel was appropriate because of the structure of the business. It's a very capital-intensive business. Uh, basically, the company has a lot of capital on the balance sheet that they need to deploy, which has a payback over something like 10 years, 15 years, right? So capital gets tied in significantly. And when the capital is tied in, if the market shifts, so gyrates in the wrong direction, you, you don't have a lot of options. The markets, the, your capital is tied in. You can't just extract it. And a lot of that cost is going to be sunk anyway as soon as it's tied in. So we're looking at different options, and I did an analysis for him that showed him he needs to measure economic profit, right, which is the net operating profit after the weighted average cost of capital, right, no pat minus whack. And he's a smart guy, you know, he's a Harvard graduate. I think he majored in marketing or leadership or something like that. That was his focus at Harvard. He's a very, he's a very sharp person. I mean, he knows what he's doing. He's an eloquent, well-spoken he understands business, but it doesn't matter whether you understand business. There are some concepts that you're always going to face that are new to you, no matter how smart you are. There's a reason why you know companies chase different performance metrics for, at a corporate measure because they don't always sometimes grasp the most important measure. So it is very clear to me over dinner that this guy did not understand why economic profit was a more important measure than what they were measuring. They were measuring margin only. And they're managing their businesses on a margin basis. And basically, they had created um, a structure whereby each of the separate divisions were managed as, as wholly owned businesses, as fiefdoms, and they were managing it themselves. So we had a discussion. I realized, well, he didn't really understand what I was saying. So I changed my tactic. I told him a story. I told him the story of an American company that was using a different metric for a long time until they brought in consultants. I think it was they brought in uh, Stern Stewart and they moved towards economic profit. And I told him the story of how the discussions evolved at the corporate level, how the discussions then evolved at the level below corporate, how the, ta how the metrics were incorporated, how the company used them to make decisions, how the operating divisions use them to make division decisions, what were some of the trade-offs, what were some of the things that the company couldn't do because of these decisions, but I told it to him as a story. So, I, in, you know, real characters, you know, this was the guy, this was the CEO, this was his background, he had grown up this way, so because of the way I'd grown up, he would, he was very closely connected to certain ways of thinking about money, right? You know, because of the way you're brought up, you have a different view of money. This was his executive team, um, this is the strategy they developed, this is why they developed the strategy. The strategy had worked well under these conditions, but it was failing for these reasons, and no one could identify it. So they brought in these consultants who implemented EVA, Enterprise Value Added, another way of measuring economic profit. And I talked him through why they made those changes. What were some of the things they had to give up in making those changes? What were some of the flexibilities they introduced in making those changes? How the market reacted when they introduced those changes? And the market did not react very well when they introduced those changes. There was a lot of criticism and ridicule initially. But then I talked him through the operating decisions that had to be made as a result of introducing this new um, corporate metric. Um, 
and how that led to value creation in the long term, how consumers responded to it, and so on. And by the way, the name of this company is Coca-Cola, who introduced economic profit as their primary measure many years ago. And what I found is that when I told him the story, things had changed completely for him. And the technique that I used is a technique that I found many years ago um, when I was um, still in consulting I read a very interesting article in the Harvard Business Review called Inside Microsoft, Balancing Creativity and Discipline. If my memory serves me correct, it's from the January 2002 edition of the Harvard Business Review, and it's written by Robert J. Herbalt, who used to be at Procter & Gamble, and then he came across to um, um, a Microsoft to take over as Chief Operating Officer. And he, and he discussed how to turn around, or how to bring discipline to the operating side, the operating side of a sprawling services business. And you know, Microsoft was then just starting to go into the Xbox and so on. But what I really liked about his style of discussion is that I found it, in complete, it was completely juxtaposed to the way the McKinsey Quarterly is written and the way BCG Perspectives is written, even the way Bain writes few or enough of those pieces they put out. They're very prescriptive. Uh, the McKinsey Quarterly BCG Perspective is very prescriptive. It's written as if we we analyzed this, we did this, and this was the result. And there's this underlying story about what were the emotional discussions that took place, which were real in a business? How were those reconciled with the business decisions? How did the data how is the data reconciled? I find those missing and what I did is that Whenever I have a discussion with a client and I try to get them to understand things, I, I always think to myself, well, I could do the McKinsey approach, which is, you know, talk the way the McKinsey quarterly is spoken, uh, written, which is tell them what I analyzed, tell them the findings, and tell them the implications. And I find that people think that's lecturing to them. In no way am I saying the McKinsey quarterly style is inappropriate. It's very appropriate for the for what they're trying to do and so same with bcg perspectives right the style of writing is very appropriate for what they're trying to do but when you are sitting across from someone face to face stories are the only things that would add a face to numbers so when you when you want to understand how to to talk about a complex topic or a simple topic i would recommend reading inside microsoft balancing creativity and discipline because what i found is so amazing about this article is the way he made the challenges come alive and the way he had weaved in the decision he made the, the decisions he made into the anecdotes of what he experienced it's a very compelling article i think you learn a lot about operations without having to be lectured about it in the prescriptive style of the mckinsey quarterly and i always recommend that when you whenever you have to explain something difficult our default mechanism when we have to explain something difficult is that we're, we're not sure whether what we're saying is compelling or makes sense. So what do we do? We revert to bite-sized chunks of information that we try to tell someone as quickly as possible. And the reason we do this is because we lack confidence. And because we lack confidence, we try to speak as less as possible. And we try to talk in shorter sound bites. And the reason why people talk in so shorter sound bites is because each bullet is largely unconnected to the next bullet, so they don't have to think about how to craft a story. Whenever I'm asked a difficult question, like this dinner I had where I had to explain how economic profit makes sense, I actually put it on my, my fork. I was eating, um, I don't know if you've ever been to Mongolia, but they eat a lot of meat down there. Or up here, I suppose, depending on which part of the map you're on. And I actually told him, like, would it be okay if I took some time, maybe 
10, 15 minutes to tell you a story about economic profit. And I'm not going to attack this from the side of, um, you know, theoretics or corporate finance theory, but I want to attack it from the side of how a company would implement this. And he said, fine. So I went through the story. But again, you know, I practice disciplined storytelling. I tell him I'm going to take about 10 to 15 minutes. I'm going to take my time by talking through the history of this company, uh, why its older measures had not worked, why it looked at a new measure, how did it implement these decisions, and some of the challenges it faced. And we had this long-ranging discussion. Every now and again, he'd stop me for clarification. But disciplined practices in storytelling. Tell him what you're going to tell him. Make sure he knows what's coming. So the worst thing is when someone wants to tell me a 15-minute story and I don't know what to expect. I told him this is going to be the first part, this is going to be the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh part. So he knew that when I was in the third part, I would say, well, so, we, let's, so we've discussed the context, we've discussed how they've used their um, previous metric. Now let's talk about the third part, which is X, Y, Z. And we go through it. So it's not just enough to tell a story. You have to tell a story in a very structured, disciplined way. I use storytelling quite a lot, but I use storytelling in a very creative way. I don't. One thing that really annoys me, I must be honest with you, is when people tell stories because they were told they need to tell a story. That irritates me no end. And I see that a lot on these leadership blogs and so on. People will tell you a story because they think that just by telling a story, they've imparted some wisdom on you. And I hate stories that have no deep insight. Not And people love telling stories about their personal life because they think that their personal life is so profound and insightful that they need to tell you stories about it. That irritates me no end. When you have to tell a story, make sure it's not just about some personal experience you had. Especially when you're talking to a client or a recruiter and so on. Make sure it has some deep insight. Whenever I tell stories to clients, I make sure that I weave in an actual experience of a company. And if you look at my study at home, I've got autobiographies just about all of the major businessmen. I read detailed case notes and SEC notes on different companies so that, for example, when when I finish in Mongolia, I'm going to be in Korea, I'm going to be talking to a steel company, the executive in the steel company, I'm not going to be talking to him about just, you know, an epiphany I had while I was sipping margaritas on a beach at Bali. No one cares about that, right? I'm going to talk to him about... Um, some of the experiences that the CEO of Nuco had, but I'm going to craft it to him as a story and show how it links back to him. So your stories need to have substance is the moral of this story. And you need to weave, you need to think very carefully about how you're going to do that. And one of the common tactics I use is that when, when I, before I'm about to speak, I ask the, in, the person I'm speaking to a lot of questions to understand the context and what they're looking for. And when, then I clarify it and say, okay, so I understand that you know, the real difficulty here is that rightfully you don't really understand why economic property is going to help you and i can understand that you know why economic profit versus profit margin why economic profit versus uh, uh, enterprise value why are we chasing this particular measure versus other measures so what i'm going to do is if you're okay i'm going to tell you a story about a company that did this and all the challenges they faced but never ever tell stories that related to some deep personal insight you had. I interviewed someone who was telling me about how they really discovered themselves by walking on some trail in the Santa Fe Mountains. Really, I don't care, to be honest. If, if, if your whole five-minute story was how you discovered yourself and watched the sunrise, you know, that's not interesting to me. There's no insight that you're imparting to me. When you tell a story, you're telling a story for your audience. So understand exactly what your audience is looking for, but build your story. So let's just recap here, right? The first one is that when you're answering questions, try to tell a story. 
don't just blurt out bullet points and expect that that would be enough. That's my first thing. When you tell a story, to practice that you are telling the right stories, do the New York Times test that I pointed out earlier. If you want to understand how to tell more complex stories, read the article Inside Microsoft Balancing Creativity and Discipline. Of course, it's an 11 or 12 page story. I think it may even be 18 pages. I can't remember the actual length. You obviously have to adjust this to your audience, but make your stories compelling. Sometimes people don't understand a complex, not because they are stupid, but because you are bad at communicating it. So people don't ha understand a concept. Make sure you take the time to explain it using a creative storyline. And a creative storyline has to be compelling. It has to be based in fact. That's one of the rules that I follow. And it should be relevant to the question at hand. And to make sure it's based in fact, I almost never um, use my own examples uh, unless someone is really interested in my own examples. So when a client says, can you tell me your own example, I'll mention it. But almost always I'll then pull in another example from someone else or from a more public figure to discuss things. It adds credibility and also the frame of reference is then common. You don't have to build a frame of reference. When you're talking about your own experiences of having walked the Santa Fe Trail, no one knows what you went through that made you need to take this week-long walk in the mountains. So you end up spending a lot of time creating unnecessary context. So wherever you can, use the story of something where the frame of reference is very common. I used Coca-Cola here um, in this uh, dinner a few hours ago, but you can use something totally different. It's really up to you. Moral of this story is use a story wherever you can. As always, I'll be happy to respond to comments and so on.